let's restart it and say good morning, welcome to chapel. Good morning, welcome to chapel. Good morning. I invite you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. I'll be reading from the message's paraphrase. But for right now, friends, 
I am completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You're acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well then, I'll nurse you, since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast? Content only when things is, everything is going your way? From its very beginning, the church has had problems. Paul's frustration with the Corinthian community just oozes off the page as this passage is read. And this morning in chapel, we are going to be exploring the often too apparent truth that the body of Christ is flawed, is broken, is imperfect, and too often is outright sinful. You've already seen a number of historical examples of this um, in the PowerPoint that opened chapel, places where the church has failed to live into the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ and considered some of the ways that GC students struggle with the imperfections of the church. So as we worship together this morning, I invite you to engage with this age-old dilemma. We believe, as Paul puts it later in Corinthians 3, that the gathered community of believers is the temple of God, that God is in fact present with us and through us as the body of Christ. And yet sometimes terrible acts are committed in the name of our God and the name of this body. So what do we do with that? How do we respond? This morning we will hear reflections from, on this question from Emily Hedrick, who is a sophomore Bible and religion major and also a ministry leader, as well as Keith Graber Miller, one of our Bible and religion professors. We will also spend time in prayer confessing and lamenting the pain and the violence that has been wrought in the name of our God. And hopefully we will also find space for hope, believing that as we cry out and lament the wrongs of the past, that we can cling to God's promises and believe that the Spirit is still working and leading us to new possibilities as the people of God. I invite you to join me in an opening prayer. Let's pray. Loving, healing, merciful God, we come to you this morning a broken people. We are continually grateful for your love and for your care for us, especially amidst all of our failings. We pray that you might open us this morning to your presence as we confront and consider difficult realities May your consoling spirit be in our midst. Amen. It will never cease to amaze me how painfully skilled human beings are at convincing themselves and others that they understand God. It will also never cease to amaze me how the human beings that think they understand God the best are the ones who claim to be in relationship with him mainly the church. 
My own depressing church story is not as direct as some. I've heard tragic accounts of ostracism, condemnation, and outright violence that churches have perpetrated against people who scared, confused, or threatened them. For me, I simply grew up in a church environment where a group of incompetent leaders was constantly grasping for power. The immature group dynamics that came out of that and trickled down into the theology and thought processes of my congregation caused much pain and unfortunately some direct attacks against me and who I was. It was imperative in my church that you agreed with the leadership at all times. If you were unhappy with something that was occurring in the church, you needed to get right with God because the people in charge were appointed by God, and if you disagreed with them, then you were disagreeing with God. If you didn't get anything out of the sermon, then you didn't come to church prepared to hear the word of the Lord. If you didn't want to go to youth group because you felt excluded and bored, you needed to ask God to help you change your attitude. I remember a congregational meeting in which the leadership had decided it was time to start a new building fund. We spent at least a half an hour as a congregation searching for stories to increase the faith of those who were second-guessing the leadership's plans. You may have noticed that some of these ideas are not completely bad. It was the use of them that was an issue. Essentially, the idea of God was used to get people in my church to do or believe whatever the leadership wanted them to. The worst thing was, they were completely unaware of it. I've always been a bit over-involved in church things. It's just me. It's part of who I am, and I've come to accept it. Unfortunately, people in my church had a difficult time dealing with this at points. I constantly felt like I was walking on eggshells, trying to let myself follow my passions while trying to remain as non-threatening as possible to the leadership in my church. One day, I went a little too far. I asked one too many questions. Though I knew the church did not think that women should serve in pastoral functions, I asked if I could fulfill my childhood dream. I asked if I could preach. I have been doing a lot of other things in my church that were being celebrated and affirmed, not only by church members, but the leadership as well. So I thought maybe I'd have a chance. I should have known better. Simply by being myself, I had threatened the leadership an ounce too much, and everything exploded. I was personally attacked, told that it wasn't necessarily because I was a woman that I couldn't preach, but because I was rebellious and destructive and leading the youth of the church in the wrong direction. And while these accusing messages were being sent to me, I was also told that God had great plans for me, that I was loved, that if I just listened and did what I was told, I could be a better church member. I could repent of my destructive ways and make things right with God again. I wasn't stupid. I saw all of the unhealthy patterns in my church as I grew up there, but that's the thing. I grew up there. While I watched others being manipulated by the theology and subconscious emotional games of the church, I hadn't learned to recognize my own susceptibility to the power plays. So when I was told that I was doing all of these horrible things, I was heartbroken. The church was something that had been close to my heart for as long as I could remember. Even though I had gone through many struggles with my home church, I managed to stay committed despite everything. And out of that commitment grew a deep love for the people there. 
When I was told that I was being destructive toward people that I cared so much about, I broke down. Not because of the accusation being brought up against me, but because I believed it was true. And then when I was most vulnerable and deeply hurt, I was told to give my pain to Jesus. Even then, I needed to be content so that the leadership wouldn't have to take responsibility for the pain they put me through. Soon afterward, my eyes were opened to the way in which my emotions and spirituality had been manipulated, abused, and taken advantage of throughout my life. The guilt and fear manipulation, the insistence that God loved me so much, how could I not follow him by listening to what the leadership had to say? This realization has caused me a great deal of spiritual unrest in the past two years, a story that I won't delve into here. What I will say is that my home church and my experiences there have made me question God like nothing else can, not only by nature of my experiences, but in an effort to protect myself from a repeat of the past. I've learned the hard way that sometimes it's safer for God not to exist. When people can take the idea of God and use it to get others to do whatever they want them to do, where does that leave God? Where does that leave the church? I think one of the reasons why the church has been able to cause so much pain for so many people is because the church attempts to deal with something that is deeply human. We are spiritual beings. There is something in our makeup that causes us to search for more than what we experience daily. Some say it is a deep-seated, unquenchable loneliness. Others say we have a piece of us that longs to be filled. Others claim that we were made for interaction with something that is larger than we are. Regardless of how this is discussed and whether or not God is involved, it's hard to deny that we are driven toward something. The church, religion in general, seeks to provide ways that we as mere human beings can interact with the infinite. I believe that people have been drawn to this over the history of humanity because of their humanness. But it's also because of our humanness that we try to limit that infinity. We want to understand. We want to know what we're supposed to do to get what we want out of God. This drive to understand isn't bad. It has helped us set up systems of theology, doctrine, and practice that groups of people seek to make their own. It has provided beautiful spiritual experiences for many people throughout humanity's history. But it's important to remember that these things are too limited to be God in and of themselves. Even the relational patterns that we create through prayer life and the concept of relationship with God are simply relational and emotional human reactions. These things cannot be God. If God is truly infinite, then God is too vast to be contained by these things. God must be much more elusive. It's so easy to justify our actions and beliefs with the idea that they come from God. When we do this, we no longer have to be responsible for our choices. God can decide for us what is right or wrong. God can tell us what path to take in life. Instead of taking responsibility for our decisions, we say that it was part of God's plan. We can also use the concept of God to keep us from being accountable to our own humanness. I remember a time when I would use God in this way. If I was ever afraid of something or didn't like someone or didn't understand something that someone did, I'd blame it on that person not following God's plan for her life. I look back on it now and shudder. This has much more to do with me than with God. The church, which happens to be made of humans, 
has a tendency to use God in this way as well. And many of us have experienced the pain that comes as a result of this. As I watch different churches tell their members what the will of God is, as I have experienced my own gifts frowned upon because of my sex, and people I love ostracized because others don't understand them, I often wonder why we even bother with church at all. But then I remember that just as I have been deeply hurt by the church, I have been healed by it as well. I am currently attending a church-affiliated college. I've processed my own story with pastors and spiritual directors. I've worked in a church that has not only allowed me to preach, but celebrated it. It is through these venues that I've been able to humble myself before something that is bigger than emotional, spiritual, or guilt manipulation. When I think of the church, I need to remember to balance my perspectives as much as I am able to in my humanness. I'm learning to accept my brokenness. The fact that I'm drawn to ministry while at the same time I'm hesitant to say much about my own belief in God when it exists. The fact that I have a very strong emotional capacity, but right now it takes phenomenal amounts of work for me to let myself experience it. The fact that some days, despite myself, I do think maybe there's more to my world than I can perceive. And perhaps the way I address that possibility is this relationship with God that people keep talking about. In the same way, I'm learning to accept the brokenness of the church. The fact that people still go to my home church and they're thriving there, despite everything. The fact that so many of us have been burned, judged, and ostracized by the church, and yet many of us have been loved, encouraged, and empowered by that same earthen vessel. Perhaps that's just what it means to be human, living with other humans, driven, for some reason, towards something that we have yet to fully discover. When I first read through students' responses to the question, what troubles you about the church, the words that we saw on the PowerPoints at the beginning of chapel, and when I saw an earlier draft of Emily's reflections, I was immediately reminded of one of the most concise and most evocative biblical passages, John 11:35. Jesus wept. I believe Jesus weeps when those within the body of Christ contribute to oppression and enslavement and ethnocentricity and forced evangelization and unwarranted exclusion and violence against women and neglect of the marginalized. Jesus weeps when Emily tells her story of gift squelching and spiritual abuse, or when a student writes in a paper based on her own experience that the Bible is a place where warring factions go for ammunition, or when others know firsthand religiously inspired prejudice, racism, lovelessness, legalism, and judgment. Jesus weeps. As a teacher of religion, I'm keenly aware of this churchly malfeasance, historically and globally, interpersonally and relationally. In some of my religion courses, I speak about these realities, essential knowledge for those who may spend their lives leading or serving or living in Christ's body. I'll confess, too, that I was born with the church gene, a gene that is always uh, and not always easy to submit or to, to pass on to subsequent generations. 
From the time I was exceedingly young, I've always loved the church, both in the abstract and in the concrete, both in its ideal form and the fractured body we encounter in our local congregations and our denominational structures. On my faith journey, even when I haven't believed in God, and that's happened a time or two, though God keeps coming back, even when I haven't believed in God, I've always continued to believe in the church. That's why for me, my greatest crisis of faith was not a theological one, but an ecclesiological one, when I was painfully marginalized out of a church two decades ago. While living in Atlanta and completing my doctorate, we were actively participating in a local congregation. I was involved in a number of leadership roles, preaching, teaching, Sunday school, filling in for the pastor when he was out of town, serving on committees. When I challenged the pastor about what I saw as an inappropriate use of power in his single-handedly excluding a young couple from the church, the Sunday after I confronted him, he told me that my spouse, Anne, and I should leave the church. And he told many others the same in subsequent weeks. It felt spiritually violent, soul molesting. Though it was immensely stressful and life draining, we stayed in the congregation that fall. Congregational members were immensely supportive of us while I plowed through doctoral exams and experienced my grandfather's death and upped my caregiving responsibilities while Anne spent six weeks on mandatory bed rest while pregnant with Niles, who's now here as a frosh. All the while, we were called before church boards to explain our position, and the pastor regularly preached sermons derived almost directly from our encounters the previous week, rather direct attacks on those of us who challenged his authority. Anne and I stopped taking communion, believing that we needed to be reconciled with others before we could do so. And the week after Niall's birth, we tearfully said goodbye to the church and limped away, utterly broken. There's more to the story that I could tell, but I won't. We soon were joined by others who had stumbled away, none of us faultless in that church conflict. And over time, and with the blessing of the conference for that region, together we started another thriving Anabaptist fellowship. Although my faith in the church was shaken to its core that fall, I continued to believe in the potential for gathered bodies of believers. And I learned to recognize even more clearly that while the church is a treasure, and I believe it is a treasure, it's a treasure in earthen vessels carried forward by fallible people like you and like me. The church is a treasure in earthen vessels carried forward by fallible people like you and like me. Over the last 20 years, my faith in the church has been ever so slowly restored. I'm enough of a student of history to recognize that it's not only the church, but nearly every other long-standing human institution, religious, social, political, or economic, that has engaged in badness over time. The problem may not be just churchiness, but the fact that people are, in some sense, flawed, especially when they gather in collectivities with the potency of power in groups. There are many times when I've thought, if only the church didn't have any people in it, we'd all be a lot better off. 
I'm also enough of a student of sociology to understand the need for prophetic movements to become routinized, domesticated, and institutionalized if they're to have any lasting impact on the world, to avoid being flash in the pan, one generational phenomena. And I'm aware not only of the church's flaws, but of its historic and contemporary calls for justice, at least in some branches of the church. Its involvement in peace movements around the world, its uh, seminal role in liberating women, whether those be first or 21st century women, its early and sustained call for the end of slavery, its pushing for child labor laws and minimum wage, wages early in the 20th century, its essential and pivotal voice in the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, its strong voice for change in Latin America over the last half century, um, uh, and its welcome, in some quarters at least, of those marginalized in other parts of civil society. And on a more personal level, I'm grateful to have found a church here in Goshen where I think most of the people in the church are better people than I am. They think that too, so it's good that we're all on the same page. In my congregation, I feel accountable to a larger body of believers who have integrity and who are trying to be faithful. They're people who make me even more internationally aware, more economically and conscientious and responsible, more civically engaged, more loving and inclusive, and more faithful to the radical vision of the one we call Christ. I know, too, that the rural congregation of my childhood is filled with good people. I wouldn't want to take a theology or an ethics class with any of them, I suspect. But I would want to, and I did, observe how many of them lived, and I learned much from them about faithful discipleship graciously embodied in daily life. The church is an earthen vessel, certainly flawed, imperfect. Sometimes its structures and power plays get in the way of transforming us and transforming the world in ways that Christ desires. But in spite of that, I continue to love the church and committed to spending my life in the church where I have more often than not been nurtured and supported and comforted and encouraged and enlivened to follow in the way of Christ. One of my seminary professors had a plaque on his wall that read, there is a song in my heart, and when I forget the words, a friend sings them to me. Should you forget the words of the church song, I hope some friends or some members of your congregation or some other body of believers can restore and sustain you by singing them to you. Thank you, Emily and Keith, for your honest and thoughtful reflections. We are now going to spend some time praying together as we lift up the brokenness of the body of Christ. Um, I'm going to be leading in prayer and leaving some spaces for silence. And we are also going to be singing um, a Kyrie from Sing the Story, number 68 in the Purple Book. So you can get that out now. And we'll be singing that song in between each prayer. Um, we will begin by hearing it played through once by Lisa and Chris, um, and the words will also, oh, there they are, very simple phrase. So I invite you into a time of prayer.
O Christ, we are your body, and we seek to walk in your way. And yet we know that our church so often stumbles, and we regret our failures. Forgiving God, we confess that in your name wars have been fought and great violence has been done, and your message of peace has been ignored. For these sins, O God, we pray, Lord, have mercy. Merciful God, we confess that too often we grasp for power and control. We fail to listen to the voices of the powerless, and our churches mirror the divisions of your society, rather than living into the vision of your kingdom. We lament, O oh Lord, where prejudice of race, class, sexuality, and nation divide. We lament that we have limited your love that rather than serving you, we have served our own theology, our own tradition, our prejudices. That we have loved only those who have loved us or who look like us. Lord, have mercy. Comforting spirit, we lament that in this nation, Christianity is too often associated with hatred and rigid doctrine, more often than it is with love and compassion. We lament that your sacred word has been used to attack, to hurt one another, used to hurt your creation. We lament that your church has been at times slow to show care, care for one another, and also care for this earth, for the land, air, and water that give us life. O oh Lord, have mercy. continue our time of prayer, I invite you to offer up your own prayers of lament. And if you want to, you may come forward and offer a prayer at this table or here at the cross, um, light a candle, and you may want to pray on behalf of the larger church, you may want to pray for someone who has been hurt by the church, or you may want to pray for yourself. Whatever is in your heart, we invite you now to offer those prayers up to God as we sing a couple of songs together. Would you turn in the same book to number 71, Gentle God When We Are Driven? Number 71 in Sing the Story. 
And the piano will play through it once, and then we'll sing all four verses. Number 352, Gentle Shepherd. Number 352. Gentle sun. 
When we bring our prayers of confession and lament to Jesus, we do so knowing that he can bear burdens that we are unable to bear alone. When we pray, we are reminded that God is greater, so much greater than the brokenness of the church. Just as we are a flawed and broken people, we also are the temple of our God, a people called together in Christ, where in spite of, through, over, around, above, under, behind all of our mistakes, God is still present and still at work. The Spirit of Christ claims us and continually seeks to make us new. My hope is that we will not despair, but that we will claim our identity as the body of Christ and continually seek after God and seek to serve God in whatever corner of the church we may find ourselves. Um, to close our service this morning, we have another PowerPoint of um, responses that Goshen College students um, offered as their dreams for what they hoped the church could be. So we're going to move into that PowerPoint now, and then we will have a final song that we will be singing, that will be played during the PowerPoint, and then we'll sing together at the end. And you can turn to that already in your green Sing the Journey, number 109, There is More Love Somewhere, 109. And we'll sing um, all three of the additional verses, hope, peace, and joy.
now may we go into this day resting in the assurance, the love, and the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.